Hello and welcome to a new episode of Other Record Labels. I'm your host, Scott Orr, where we talk about the art and culture of running an independent record label. And today's episode, I'm so excited for you to hear. There is so much for me to get through in in this intro, so please bear with me because I just want to get really quick to the interview. But today I'm speaking with Nabil Ayers, who, and let's go right from the beginning of the story, is I reached out to them uh, because Nabil was the president of 4AD, and everybody knows 4AD. They're an incredible record label, one of the biggest independent record labels in our circles. And so to have them on the show would be a huge get. And so I was speaking with their uh, with the people there to, to, to get someone from 4AD, and we got really close. And, and then it just so happened that Nabil, who I was supposed to speak with, is ended up writing a book that was coming out around this time. And so we thought we could put that together. Around that same time, Nabil shifted from the president of 4AD to the president of Beggars Group. And Beggars Group is this uh, much larger record label that encompasses other labels like Matador and Rough Trade. And so at the same time that this is all happening, Nabil has been written a book. It's a memoir. It's a book about his father, who is a very well-known musician, Roy Ayers, who wrote the song "Everyone Loves the Sunshine." We'll get we get into all this, so I'm not going to spoil everything for you. But here's what I will say: This book is out now. It is phenomenal. It has changed my life. I say this a hundred times in this episode. I'm not lying to you. I, I want you to read this book. I mean, it's a great story about family. It's a great story about uh, you know the, the the is music in our DNA, or is it completely nurture, or is it a little bit of both? I, I love this concept so much. But then throughout the story in this book, there's these uh, music industry stories because Nabil started his own record store that became extremely popular in the early 2000s and late 90s in Seattle. He also started his own record label called Control Group and then a reissue label called Valley of Search before moving on to 4AD and now Beggars Group. There's just so much record label talk and music industry talk. This is going to be one of our most richest episodes, and I'm so grateful for uh, Nabil for coming on the show and and taking so much time to chat about his new book and all of his experience with all of these labels. So I really hope you uh, enjoy this. If you want to get a copy of this book and find out a little bit more, go to otherrecordlabels.com slash books. That's otherrecordlabels.com slash books, where I include Nabil's book as well as some of the other books that we've recommended over the years. If you are new to the um to other record labels. Welcome. Please subscribe and enjoy this episode and our previous episodes. And if you're someone who is uh, dipping your toes in the record label world and thinking, hey, maybe I should start a record label. I think I could do it and aren't get inspired by today's episode, then go to otherrecordlabels.com slash toolkit where you can download a free toolkit that includes a checklist and a workbook and some very helpful resources to get you on your way. Enjoy today's episode. Let me tell you how this works. So I got your book uh, from your publisher about three days ago <laughs> and I got it in a PDF form. And so I was going, it was a Friday. I was going away for the weekend. I downloaded the PDF to my phone uh, in Dropbox <laughs> to my iPhone. Sounds so terrible. And it, yeah. And so, um, and so, uh, well, I'm, I'm low on the press list, so I don't get a, a hard copy. I'm like way down. I get the, the little 300 kilobyte uh, PDF. No, I'm oh, joking. No. So, so anyway, I, my plan was on Sunday, I was like, I got to open this thing up and I got, I'm going to read the introduction and I'm going to read the last chapter and I'm going to skim through for the four AD stuff. Sure. And then it, he'll think I read the book. <laughs> and so I, 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 this is a true story. I'm not, I kid you not. And okay. I am reading, I, I read the introduction and I go, Oh, 
And I, I tell my wife, I'm like, this is going to be a good book. This is <laughs> Sunday after lunch. Sunday okay. at mid, maybe 11 o'clock, I'm lying in bed. I've got three chapters to go. I finally fall asleep. The next morning, I wake up at seven o'clock and I finish the book. I, Get out I of here on you, your phone. On my phone. I'm scrolling through. In fact, there's I'm, one time during the time where, where you're having lunch with your father, like the kind of the mm -hmm. climax of the book. And right. I'm like, I'm, I'm goosebumps and I'm standing, I'm pacing because I'm not getting enough steps. Oh so I'm God. like, <laughs> I'm having to pace and I'm on my phone and I'm scrolling. The book is so Incredible. great. Well, the book is well, so I good. Mean, Thank you so much, not oh only gosh. for liking it, but even just for reading it. I mean, it's such a, it's a funny thing because I come from a music background. I mean, I've played in bands my whole life and now I work for record mm -hmm. companies and that's, that's really it. The writing thing is new for me. I've never been a huge reader either, but I've been a huge music person. So it's always been, you know, my band finishes an album. You give it to somebody, you expect them to listen yeah. to it. It's easy to do. You <laughs> right, can do it on the subway, right. you can do it in the car, or yeah, you can yeah. even listen to a few songs on the way to the interview or the sure, meeting. Sure. But a book is not that. That's so right. I, I think I come from a weird place, at least when I talk to like the publisher and people in the book world, where I'm a lot more forgiving and don't expect people to have read it because it just seems like such a huge ask. <laughs> like, well, how could you, how that's can you right. just read a book every time you talk to somebody? I, yeah. And I often wonder that, you know, when, uh, on talk shows, when they talk about that and yeah. how, how that, even movies, right. I mean, to sit down I think down there's and a watch. lot of producers reading and that's feeding right. questions that's right. you know, yeah. to hosts. Yeah. Well, and you know what? And I, and I thought just with the time constraint and the fact that we want to talk about your labels and, and about, um, beggars as sure. well, but I, I thought, you know, we can talk, we can touch on the, the, on the book a little bit, but that this is what I was thinking about earlier when I was speaking with, with your publicist and stuff. And I was thinking when we have a chance, you know, we'll touch on the book and just the timing worked out well for when the book was coming out. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but then as I'm, as I'm going through it and I think what is so great about it, and this is what I, I want our listeners to, to, to pick up this book and, and read it because the story of, of family and uh, uh, the father son relationship is so interesting and, and, and race. But then if that's not enough for you, there's these little indie music tidbits that are thrown in between those parts <laughs> of the story. So that's kind of fun, you know, like right, right. It's, it's on its own as a memoir. It's a great story. It's a touching story. But then to be like, oh, that actually, I like a little bit behind the scenes of a late night TV show or, or, right. or uh, running a record store, that kind of stuff. So that's, that's what funny. I think Thank our you. listeners will love about it. Yeah. Yeah. The story between you and your father, Roy Ayers, who are, as our listeners may not know, is an extremely accomplished artist who wrote the hit song, Everybody Loves the Sunshine, which I don't know if it was in, a, in an advertisement recently in Canada. And it's in tons. I mean, I, I can think of four or five instances in the last year. That's that, right. Yeah, I've, it was on the Coors Apple commercial. It's in a Coors the commercial. The Coors commercial. In, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> that's that's where I, I'd seen it most recently. One of the themes of this book is this question of nature uh, versus nurture. And from my mm -hmm. perspective, which isn't as refined as yours, but from my perspective, your life in music seems almost entirely nurture. Your right. uncle was a jazz musician and helped raise you. Your mother took you to concerts when you were young. Your neighbor was a timpani player. It seems entirely nurturing. Do you really think that music can be in our DNA? Or is, is that just a, a nice way to try to connect ourselves to the, to right. the people who brought us here? Yeah, and that, that's the thing. And that's what's hard for me is I'll never know. I mean, the, the quick yeah. backstory is that I don't know my father, Roy. We've met a few times in my life. Um, and that was really the plan. My mother was mm -hmm. young and single and wanted to be a young single mother and asked Roy if he would be the father of her child. And that 
told him that he wouldn't need to be involved and everyone agreed and that's always been the case. So so I've never been around him. I've met him a handful of times as a kid. Finally, as an adult, got to to have one kind of long lunch and ask a bunch of questions. Um, but yeah, it's for me, it's been music from literally every, the first second I can remember. Mm. Um, and so I always assumed that part of that genetic, that I got some right. of that from him. But as I grew older, only recently, I've either heard about or met some of his other kids, my half siblings who, you know, who have no connection to music and That's never right. played music. And That's that right. really surprised me. And at the same time, I've learned more. I mean, of course, I grew up really close with my mother and still am. And my uncle, who's still playing music, mm. he's recording a new album next week. Wow. <laughs> he's 72. Wow. Um, and those are the people that took me to concerts, that bought me records, that bought me instruments, that really, truly, in every possible way supported my interest in music from a really young age. So it's kind of impossible to to ever figure out which, you know, yeah. which, which was the more dominant. I mean, I would tend to agree with you that, <laughs> you know, had they just tried to get me to to read philosophy and nothing yeah, else, would right. I have been a philosopher or would I have just had a natural pull toward music? Yeah. I, I don't know. Well, that's right. And I don't want to spoil too much for our, our the future readers, but uh, it, yeah, that is interesting about some of the other uh, of your siblings who didn't go down the path of music. And and I think we confuse it with DNA because it's usually our parents or our family who support us and who buy us these intr- instruments. So I think that's, right. you know, that's so interesting. There's, uh, on another scale, there's a, a lot of discussion about your musical background, but I'm also interested in, and, and we'll get into everything that you've accomplished, but I'm interested in your entrepreneurial background, mm. uh, which from my perspective, you seem to have this, Start something new, create something, try something new, drive within you. These mm-hmm. are all symptoms of someone with an entrepreneurial spirit. Where does that come from? My mother would say it comes from her. Yeah. <laughs> that it comes from yeah. um, when I was a kid. We lived in Amherst, Massachusetts for four years when I was age five to nine. And during that time, she finished her college degree and got her MBA. Mm. And this was in the 70s. This was a really different time. You know, it was super loose. There were kids running around everywhere. And she took me to tons of her classes. I remember really well going to some of her MBA classes and just sitting there while wow. the teacher lectured. I remember being at home when she hosted study groups and there'd be six or eight people sitting around talking about a project. And I I remember being interested and listening to those things. Yeah. But and at the same time, I don't know. I mean, I think I, I weirdly just always understood that there's this weird, rela- I mean, I understood when I opened a lemonade stand when I was, whatever, seven years old, that the idea is you buy this thing, you break it up into smaller pieces, and you sell mm. that for more money than the original thing cost. And that's, that is business. That's kind of it, right? Right. <laughs> and you do right. that with different things. Yeah. And so uh, it's, it's either just natural or it's from being around my mother in those classes, I guess. Right. Another sort of yeah. nature versus yeah. nature. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, I always uh, I, I always attribute my entrepreneurial spirit to reverse engineering, wanting a toy or wanting something. I think, uh-huh. how do I get that? So you know, if I want a new bike, what's it going to take? You're talking about dividing yeah. the things, but yeah, <laughs> right. Tell me about we got to talk about record labels. Tell me about the the first time you noticed. Uh, a record label logo on a record or a CD spine and started yeah. to figure out what that meant or what they did or how that connected to the music you liked. Yeah. I mean, I remember, 
I mean, I grew up, when I was really young, it was lots of jazz. My uncle is a jazz saxophone player. He had a, a loft in New York in the 70s, and I, would just, I was just surrounded by these people who played music all the time. And, and we had records. We had, you know, me and my mom, we had Beatles records and Seals and Crofts and Stevie Wonder and all these people. And I don't remember noticing things then, but, but the key moment was when I was five and I bought Kiss Destroyer. And that was the first, I mean, you know, bought in air quotes, but yeah. that was the first album that... I picked out at the record store, and that was my record that I'd bought. Yeah. Um, and that was just the the craziest, most important thing in the world to me that just affected me so much. And that's, you know, Kiss was built to do that to kids. Mm, <laughs> yeah, it, yeah. it really worked. And then I got into the Village People not long after. And there's a point at which I remember, of course, studying those records so much because that's all you could do. Those, you know, they weren't on TV. There was no internet. There wasn't much more information to gain. So I would just look at those records over and over, and they both had this Casablanca logo on them. This sort of right. looked like neon lights. Yeah. It was printed on the back cover. It was also on the actual label of the record. It looked exactly the same. I remember the Grease soundtrack and the Saturday Night Fever soundtrack both had the RSO logo, which was like a weird, I can't even picture it. It was like some kind of a pink animal. Maybe it was a okay. pig or okay. donkey yeah. or something. But <laughs> And at the time, probably when I was five, six, seven, of course, I didn't know what it meant, but I noticed it, and I knew that somehow they had something in common. Sure. Grease and Saturday Night Fever yeah. and Kiss and the Village People. Yeah. It turns out they were basically label mates, or the same people had right. released those records. Right. And I don't know when I figured that much out. <laughs> that might have been, but it was still fairly early because I was a super crazy fan of early MTV, mm-hmm. which would have been when I was about 10. Every video said, artist, song, album oh, that's label right yeah. every single video and right. so of course the label after a few days of watching it's like yeah. oh wow oh irs a lot of good stuff on irs right like that's when that really started to click is when yeah. you, you realize you see so many things that they have in common and so would the only way to be i, I mean I, I i can't really remember too much of you know like you say i, I didn't have like you only had like twenty dollars every couple of months to buy a record right, or right. on when on your birthday. But how would you like today? You can Google that, and I think there's even a way on Spotify to search by label. But right. uh, how but would you have you, to search? Yeah, you so, can't accidentally find that's, out. That's right. Yeah, yeah. So, <laughs> right. so were you then in the future going to record stores, picking up the records, and looking on the back? Always. Yeah. yeah okay. Always. And then, okay. of, of course, once I once I got older, and once you know, by the time I was in high school. That's when I discovered Pixies and 4AD, of course, was a thing, which, mm. which we'll get into. Sure. Um, SST, absolutely, in high school. And it, it really did, it, it meant something. And not not always that the music's going to sound the same. I kind of disagree with with that with some people. Right, but, right. But at least that there's some through line, some always, kind of ethos, yeah. something that that tied them together that maybe you couldn't hear if you just listened to the albums, but but there was a story somehow in there and that was almost more interesting to me than these two albums sound kind of the same. So are you as a label head and and you and and you're running lots of different labels, do you think about that? Does that inform decision making? Not so much now. I mean, so what's interesting is I I ran 4AD in the US for 13 years and only recently transitioned into this role as president of Beggars US, which mm-hmm. is the company that's over all five labels, but but I'm actually not Running all five labels, there there is a person right. that runs right. each of those labels, and my job is to more oversee the way that those labels interact with the many people who are the beggars employees in the U.S. who do okay. the radio promotion and the marketing and you okay. know all those yeah. various roles. So so it's actually less A and R, less artist, less musical, <laughs> for lack of a better right. term. But I certainly get to get to see a lot more and get a better 
picture of the landscape internally. I mean, I always defended the fact that to me, 4AD, people love to talk about, yeah, but what about the old 4AD? You know, it was so different then. Mm. Um, and my my response was always like, so you think Pixies and Cocteau Twins really sounded alike? This, you know, <laughs> sure. crazy guitar yeah. band from Massachusetts and this like lush band who's sung in a secret, secret right. language from, right. from the UK. Like, to me, those bands really don't sound alike. That's a good but point. when you put the Von Oliver art on both albums and you kind of mm. do all the things that that happen to draw them together, it made sense. And of course, they do have a lot in common and they they feel like they feel like they're in the same space. But I don't know. It's, yeah. it's you know, yeah. I don't think it was ever quite as cohesive as people like to think. I think that's just a nice way to think. That's an interesting point. Yeah. And and some some people, even when the when the cohesiveness in the aesthetic is found in, in certain labels, that may be only perceived by a p- certain percentage of the fans. It might be lost right, on some right. people. Some people don't care about that. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I, I was a, I was in college from when Sub Pop, you know, I was in college just outside of Seattle when Sub Pop was really having what many would call its heyday. And and of course, I mean, I get that Soundgarden and Nirvana, and, you know, a few of those bands, Jack and Dino made the records, the art looked the same, which was always a thing. There's mm. the, the same the same photographer, yeah. like all those things made it. And, and those artists, sure, arguably were in a similar lane, but they always put out lots of weird stuff on yeah. Sub that wasn't exactly that. But That's those right. are the things that did well and that sort of made the name. Well, I think the this hopefully the through line is that you're trusting some sort of curator. Right. That's the thing. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. that's what I thought. I remember when I was into SST, I got into SST because I was a huge descendants fan. And then I heard the Minutemen, who who I get, who are close enough, but I mean a pretty different band, and the Meat Puppets are a different band. I mean and there's a Soundgarden album on SST that doesn't sound like any of those bands. And there's a great Bad Brains album on SST, one of my favorite albums of all time, Eye Against Eye, that definitely doesn't sound like those bands. Right, 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 right. But they yeah. all came out on the same label at the same time, and they're all really, really good. Yeah, no, that's true. I want to ask you about the role of record labels as preservation. As a label owner myself, I view the records I release as these snapshots of time that deserve to to be given their own artwork and their own day in the sun and, and right. just kind of officially capturing some sort of moment that I love. And I tell you what, this is crazy because I'm reading your book and I'm, I'm reading about your Uncle Alan, who is a... Uh, an experimental jazz saxophone player and is, like mm-hmm. you said, still making records. And But before, I, I didn't know all of this while I'm reading the book. I hadn't done the research for today yet. Right, right. And as I'm, and so I, I quickly, as I'm reading, I have the noise cancellation on and I'm listening to Value, Value of Secrets oh, wow. uh, while reading your book. And, <laughs> and here's the thought that came to my mind. I thought, if I was Nabil, I would re-release all of my uncle's old records because right. I, and I'm, I'm thinking, you know, like it, it just makes sense. It's so, there's such a connection. And then during right. today's research, I'm like, oh, <laughs> he's well ahead of me. <laughs> yeah. It's, um, so talk to me about yeah, the mean, role just, of preservation. Yeah. I mean, I think that's, that's and, and labels were maybe more necessary for that before. I mean, I'm certainly, it's a funny thing. This might go on a tangent, but I'll come back to that. Please. But I think there's so many, we don't need labels anymore, people. <laughs> and maybe they're right. That's totally fine. I, my job is not to sit here and argue, no, you're wrong. Yes, yeah. you do. My job is to sit here, or my stance is, it's, there's never been 
more or easier ways to release music, and that's incredible. And people absolutely should do whatever they can, and they should be able to make whatever decision to work with someone or to work with a huge company or to do it themselves or anything in between. And it's all great. And I think I'm often put on the defensive where if somebody says something like that, it's my job to rebut and say, no, <laughs> labels are the most important thing in the world. It's the only way to do it. You can't do it without us. And I, I've never felt like that. It's, I mean, it's incredible to be able to self-release things. Um, but all of that makes the preservation thing. I mean, certainly what's interesting about the preservation point is that that's when a catalog comes into play. And that's when Sub Pop or 4AD or any of these great labels that we're talking about, what sort of becomes important and cool about them is that you can look at these decades of curation and it becomes visually and musically and aesthetically this sort of much bigger picture that all these artists have built with the help of some curator, for lack of a better term. And I think that's really cool. And that's part of the preservation is sort of putting it in this light where each one of these albums makes the one before it and the one after it more important mm. in a way. And mm. that's that's a lot of what I like about labels is it offers a lot of context and it can benefit artists in that way. That's just one way to do it. It's not right. the only way. I, I, I often hear the same thing about we don't, people say, do we even need record labels anymore? Artists ask that all the time. And the easy answer mm -hmm. is no, no, of course right. not. But we don't need restaurants. Yep. We don't need coffee shops. <laughs> exactly. We right. can do that at home. Uh, There's yeah. a lot of things, right? We don't yeah. need Uber. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, so let's get this label thing straight. Because um, I think all of the stories are equally interesting. You own two labels, Control Group <laughs> and Valley of Search. Plus, uh, you're the head of beggars in the U.S., uh, which mm -hmm. encompasses 4AD, Matador, Matador, sorry, XL, and Rough Trade. Our our, our listeners are very, very familiar with all right, of them. And Young, which is a fifth label. Right, now. that's right. Yeah. I'm sorry, I, I saw that, yes. Uh, how do you balance and prioritize, and maybe give us a little bit of a background, because in the book you talk a little bit about uh, the, the formation of control, but um, how do you balance and prioritize your labels with your, your day yeah. job, if you will? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, the, the the priority is my day job. Sure. I mean, you know, it's not not simply because it's because I get paid to work here, but but I love it, and there are a lot of people and artists and and a sort of structure that mm. relies on me, and that's and I love it, and that's that's why I come to work happy every day. Of so that that's of course the first priority, and my labels are a side project, a hobby, but yeah. one that I'm very passionate about, and and in a weird way, I mean, I've been doing that longer than I've been at 4ED or beggars. So, I mean, I started my own labels the same reason that tons of people do. I think it was around 2002, which is 20 years ago. Wow. And I owned a record store in Seattle with my partner, Jason, Sonic Boom Records, not the one in Toronto, the one I in Seattle. I was going to add, there's no connection? Is there any <laughs> there's connection? no connection. Oh, gosh. We were first, but I'm, okay. I hear they're yeah, great. All right. There's no beef. <laughs> um, it's a great store. So... <laughs> Uh, you know, so I had this record store. I played in bands, and uh, and I was in a band called Alien Crime Syndicate, and we made a record, and no one wanted to put it out. And that was at a time when getting signed was, of course, the goal, and and mm -hmm. really the only way to get your music out there. So, um, and so I said, well, look, I I have enough money to do this. I know some things. I own a record store. I could hire a publicist. I could press a couple thousand CDs, and I will be our label. That's wow. basically, and so I did, and. And really had a great time doing it and setting it up um, and learned a lot. And when the record came out, I, I think weirdly, this actually fueled it more. 
we signed to V2 to a much bigger label who at the time releasing, they were killing it with the White Stripes yeah. and Moby. Like it was really like yeah. they were doing really well. So we, of course, jumped at that deal. They bought that album from me because right. I was the label. And so suddenly I'd set up, you know, I had a distributor, I had this, I had all these things. These yeah. weren't employees. I didn't have like a payroll, but I had, I'd built this mini infrastructure. Yeah. And I had a really fun time getting there. And then suddenly, I had no records. <laughs> it was really weird to have literally <laughs> sold away yeah. the one album yeah. that I'd spent all this time putting out. <laughs> the, V2 didn't last very long after that. They just disappeared like overnight, didn't they? Yeah, it was 2004? pretty quick. I think a lot of stuff yeah. maybe folded into Universal and just, you know, yeah. that's what happened. Oh, that was a great label. I love Most that. labels. <laughs> most major <laughs> yeah. label. Yeah, what whatever. a bummer. Okay, yeah. so yeah, so um, so it had been successful then. You had sold right, this record. Right, and so I was yeah. like, well, that was really fun and in a weird way, I think if I'd kept our record and put it out, that might have made me work on that album longer and less likely to do other things because I probably would have been busy or spending mm -hmm. money or something. Mm -hmm. But suddenly they gave me money right. and took away my record, not willingly. Yeah. But so yeah. suddenly I was like, wow, I should do this again. And so I started putting out, hey, this was the time in Seattle when it was pretty easy. There were so many good bands. I knew a lot of people. I owned a record store. Um and so I started putting out records by other bands in town who I thought were good. And it was also a time when like, you could plan on selling. If a, if a band was good and playing shows, you could sell 1,000 CDs in Seattle. Right. And that wow. very easily was seven to $10,000, depending on how you look at it. That's and it cost, didn't cost that much to press CDs and didn't like do huge national press campaigns. So like, you could do it and, and make money. And sometimes they'd lose money. And, yeah. and I started doing that. And so that was called the control group. And and that lasted for, well, it's still around, but I mean, it turned into a couple different things over the years. I mean, there was a point at which the majors had no interest in pressing vinyl, which I'm sure you remember, which was so strange. Yeah, I'm very interested in this this component because you had talked about it being in 2008, I think. And, and yeah. I remember, and it was so interesting because I do remember this time where you'd walk into a record store and there was like a handful of new vinyl in mm -hmm. cellophane and it's like that's weird vinyl is usually in a crate <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> all banged up and yeah. and that was 2008 2009 i remember seeing and, and starting to buy brand new records and so yeah, yeah what how did you get wind of hey I, I should release the kings of leon or the killers well we we were still i mean we always sold a lot of vinyl at sonic boom because sub pop was in town okay up, up records barsook all those labels were were local label killer rock stars i mean k yep. like yep. everybody was right within a few miles right of us, so we sold so many LPs. So we never thought, I mean, it was always a big thing for okay. us. Um, and we knew there were people who wanted it. And so what happened was I'd put out a couple of the albums, just normal Northwest bands on vinyl. And a friend of mine who had been our local Island Records rep in Seattle had moved on to a national position. And I think was they just signed this band called The Killers. And he called me and he's like, look, we have this band called The Killers. They're putting an album out soon. They really want vinyl. We don't want to press it. Oh you do gosh. vinyl on your label, don't oh you? And that was at a time when, like, that would happen. Like, right. Sub Pop put out, you know, they would put out the like the Afghan Wigs record when they signed to Elektra. The vinyl yeah. stayed with yeah. Sub Pop. Like that happened a lot in those days. So the Killers didn't come from one of those places. So I just got this call because I knew my friend and he knew I pressed vinyl. So oh my goodness, I, this is a really funny story. I remember <laughs> saying like, yes, but like. I don't know if like that record on vinyl, are people going to care? Like your Island records, would you buy like 200 from me just so I don't lose my shirt and you uh -huh. can use them as promos? And I really meant it. I yeah. was like, I don't want to lose money yeah. putting out this band's vinyl. I remember, <laughs> so I put it out. My list price 
was eleven ninety eight. Oh, I remember thinking goodness. like, God, that's really pushing it. That's expensive, but you know, oh. I got to make my money back on this. And of course, that band just blew up. And well, this it is hot. Great. And this I lost, is hot. I lost the rights a long about. time ago. Yeah. But that was a <laughs> but that was a crazy thing. And so what that led to was another friend at RCA saying. Hey, you did the Killers vinyl, right? Kings of Leon really want vinyl right. of their album. Would you do it? So that led to that, and then it led back to me doing a PJ Harvey record with Island because, like, it was, it was crazy. It was that a weird, so crazy. But business it's but, for a while. It was but really going fun. back, like you're saying, I mean, if somebody called me and said, "Would you put two or three thousand dollars up from just this band of young kids?" I mean, it's hot yeah. fuss we're talking about now, but like, I there's no way I could do that. That's right. Ballsy. And also, like, I mean, no offense to the killers. I really love that record, but like, but on paper, like a major label alt radio band. Right. That's which right. Which was a much, you know, it wasn't Modest Mouse or Death Cab, which is like, that's what we were selling. Well, okay, good point. And also, if the, uh, to me, as a business person, I'd be like, wait, hold on a second. The major labels are saying this is a bad investment. <laughs> <laughs> of course, right. We don't want to do Where's this. Let's this? see if this guy in Seattle will do yeah. it. Yeah. Oh my goodness. Well, I'm thinking now, if you still had that test pressing, then that would have paid for the whole shipment of selling oh, wow. it today. I wonder. Yeah. <laughs> that yeah. is so, so that so that was a, a weird side thing. And then and then what happened is a friend came back from Popcom, which is like kind of the German South by Southwest, like this international okay. music festival. And he was like, Look, I heard this band there that I think you're gonna love. And he gave me the C D and it was this Danish band called Figurines, and he was right, like to the point where I just freaked out when I listened to it. I remember listening to it in the car, mm. and I remember thinking, I have to figure out a way to get to these guys before Sub Pop or Matador does. Like, oh, that's wow. actually what wow. I felt at the time. Yeah. I was like, this is a real thing. This is not, right. I mean, not that the bands I worked with weren't, but sure. this was like not a Seattle band. This was an international band. And uh, got in touch with them on MySpace, <laughs> licensed the record for America pretty easily. They were psyched. They yeah. were just like, wow, amazing. Someone in America wants to put out a record. Sure. They got lots of Danish funding, which helped bring them over. And that was the first record that like turned into a real thing. Got like, mm. you know, 8.1 on Pitchfork, like all the sort of really good indie stuff. And they toured a ton in America and it did really well. And that led to me signing El Perro Del Mar, who's from Sweden. And then El Perro Del Mar's manager managed Lucky Lee, who mm. was signing with Atlantic, but they wanted to get an EP out first. So I did that. So suddenly it went from like all Seattle-ish rock bands to weird major label vinyl to now, you know, pretty successful Scandinavian right. indie music. <laughs> this is well, all within like I, seven years. <laughs> and that's kind of a beautiful thing of just kind of following your nose and following right. where, what, what, yeah. Well, and I, you know, we've talked about this before, just a second ago about how actually brave it would be to do this killers project before they're the killers. Right. And, but the, it's also could be said about, starting a label in 2002 and I imagine your expertise from or your experience from running a record store knowing what you could do knowing what you could sell because I mean even though the competition is extremely low in 2002 when it comes to indie labels and indie artists who could afford mm -hmm. to to glass master CD uh, right. what gave you that confidence I think it was just the fact that the, this this sounds fun. Let's try it. This is this is a real band, and maybe this band will be yeah. something, and maybe that'll help me. And, right. the, and the album's really good. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. that's interesting. It was, a, but definitely. I mean, it's hard to explain that it really felt like a risk at the time. Yeah. Well, I mean, I mean, I there, there were uh, there are a hundred bands 
that month that were new right. major label signees that were going to blow up. And one did. Well, <laughs> one of the cool industry tidbits that, or little anecdotes that come in the book, and they're, they're, all, they're all the time because they start in the 70s and, and all the way up to today. Mm-hmm. And, and, and then I love them. They're just like little treats in, in amongst this beautiful story. But one of them is this uh, that I pulled from it is how it really is. I mean, our job really is all of this like miniature little gambles. And, and even you as an independent artist, you're thinking, do I join this band as a drummer? Mm-hmm. Or do I join this band called Death Cab? No, I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna go <laughs> right. with them. I'm gonna go with this band. You know, right. and also the story of these major labels signing these bands that none of us have have heard of. They they weren't. Yeah. They didn't last. And but back so then, they were more than on a major. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's right. How sad is that? But it, yeah, love that. Yeah, that is the thing. It's all. It's like you know. But that's life, right? Yeah. It's like a, a huge series of macro and micro decisions that affect everything. <laughs> yeah, that's right. As and I, the weird thing is, there's always so much like, oh, I'm so glad I did what I did. Like it's 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 never. I mean, things are great for me. I'm really happy. I think I made tons of the right decisions, and <laughs> and even things that might have been better still don't mean that I would have had a better life. But it's still. You know, you always wonder what would have happened if you go the other way. That's but. so interesting, yeah. As I think about what makes a label like Valley of Search special, I start to think of the indie labels at the other end of the spectrum, like 4AD or Secretly, that from the perspective of people like me who run small indie labels, these mm-hmm. bigger labels seem closer to a major label than they are to us smaller indies. So that may just be my perspective, Right. But how does a big label group like Beggars maintain that indie mindset? However you define that, is right. that something that's ever thought of explicitly or or maybe that's not a concern? I don't think it needs to be. It's weird. It's it's, it's hard to explain this, but it really is true. But I think I mean, I know lots of people at Secretly and, and all of those labels, all of those labels for the most part started the same way that Valley of Search did or the same way that Merge did. Most of these indie labels started because someone was in a band or someone was friends with a band that they loved mm. and they wanted to put out their own record or they wanted to help their friends. The goal in yeah. most of those cases was not, I know a way to make money. Let's do this. <laughs> Surely there were people who were like, I bet we could make money doing this. But I think in, in almost every case of at least the sort of group of labels we're talking about, the goal was to get music that someone really loved out to more people. Mm. And when you have that as the starting point, of course it grows and you hire more people. But I think as that happens, and it's happened so gradually with all those companies, I mean, Beggars is over 40 years now, but Martin still owns the company and is super involved. And it's Mm. been a very, very slow, steady growth. And as people get hired and as the people who hire hire new people, I think there's still, I think that ethos remains. And And I think it's still... I mean, so many of the people that work at this company come from record stores, which is just crazy to <laughs> yeah. me. It's weird how yeah. much we talk about it. I mean, yeah. Melanie, who runs Rough Trade, Gabe, who's our head of uh, of content, does video stuff here, and me. I mean, I hired both of them at Sonic Boom when they were kids, oh, and now my. we all work <laughs> here in New oh, York. My goodness. I didn't hire either yeah. of them. Gabe worked yeah. here before I did. It's it's not complete coincidence, but yeah. it's not like That's right. me pulling over my people. It's not. Yeah. It's just like I think. The artists and the people who gravitate towards these labels, who want to work for these labels, who want to be on these labels, are just from a certain sort of school of thought. Mm. And I think that big or small, that that just kind of remains throughout. Uh, you know what? I, I mean, I've I've spoken with 
probably close to a hundred labels now. And I, I, I could easily guess 75% or more has started by somebody self-releasing their first project, like you with Control Group. Yep. Daniel Miller was, I spoke to Daniel Miller for here from Mute Records mm-hmm. and going all the way back to, to the 70s, 80s when they started was was for his own project. And it's, it's just, yeah. yeah, that's so interesting, but that's such a beautiful thing about it. And that's a great right. point. Yeah. You talked about something really interesting about how often a label manager is managing someone's life dream it's certainly more on a level like 4AD or at a major label, but that's an interesting position to be in and to possibly be an arbitrator of someone's personal accomplishments. I think that that's a really interesting take and it's something I've never really thought about before, yeah. how even small labels can can ha- play a role in, in helping facilitate someone's life dream. That's incredible. Yeah, I mean, that's, you know, those dreams can be on any scale from yeah. whatever, yeah. Grammys and Saturday Night Live to like, Whatever I want to be able to play for a hundred people in every rent. town, and I want to be on great non-com radio stations. And yeah, there's so many yeah, different yeah. levels of of what people want. But the second you involve anyone, even if it's the smallest one-person operation, it's a lot. There's a lot of pressure on that person to try to help an artist achieve that. I mean, I felt that. I still feel that with my own small label. That's why I do very little. I put out one, maybe two albums a year because I want to be able to at least invest time and energy and more than money. It's not. I mean. I spend money, but that you can't just do that. You have to, yeah. you have to try, and right. you have to believe in the things that you put out, and that's what gets across to people. Not mm. so much hiring a publicist. Of course, that helps; it can help. But like, nobody can tell a story like the person who's doing it or the person who's you know involved with mm. them. So, that, it's a funny thing that happened with, with this book coming out. There's a manager of a 4AD band who I've worked with for a long time, and I was talking to him, and he was he's asking a lot about it because he's, I think, interested. Maybe he has an artist who's working on a book. And I just kind of opened up. I was like, look, it's stressful. There's a lot of personal stuff. I wonder what people are going to think. I'm worried I didn't, you know, I'm getting this podcast, but am I going to get this? I just kind of, all yeah. all the yeah. stress I was feeling, I just kind of <laughs> let it out. Yeah. And he was like, that's so great to hear everyone who works in a position with anyone creative should have to do their own creative thing every 10 years (laughs) just to be reminded of what an artist feels like every time a record comes out. And it's a great point. It's totally true in a weird way. The book, which is not music, is reminding me of what it felt like to be in a band and is reminding me of what all these people that I work with feel like every day. That's a great point. Uh, You talked about being backstage as a young boy and the fame and and money that came along with you know everything you got to see what happens to that feeling of wonder as you get older and as you get more accomplished what does it feel like now at at the grammys or backstage of a a sold out show has it been demystified have you seen behind the curtain uh and it it this magic no longer exists or how do you maintain that it's it's yes and no uh i mean of course like now when I go to things where I'm backstage somewhere, it doesn't feel like a big deal, but it's still it's still really exciting. And there are still like smells and sounds and it's, <laughs> yeah. it's the boring things. It's like, you know, the sound of a, a sound check or like the one, two, or like all that stuff. Yeah. But but this is this is super cheesy. But what happened to me recently, which was the best feeling, I just turned 50 this year, and I, which means I've been going to shows for like 49 and a half right. years. Um, I was in Nashville for this convention a few weeks ago and Turnstile were playing and I love that album and sure. I hadn't seen them yet on this tour. And so I was definitely going to that show and then Soul Glow were playing across town and I had never seen them and really wanted to see them. And that Turnstile was at like a fancy Brooklyn Bowl, like Slick Club and Soul Glow was at this DIY space, like in a strip mall 
And so I was like, I can do both. I know I can do it. I'm going to watch like five turnstile songs because I want to see them again in New yeah. York soon. And then I'm going to get in an Uber. I'm going to blaze across town and see Soul Glow. Did that, got to Soul Glow, and the Uber pulled up, and there were, you know, 50 or 75 kids spilling out of the door of this place. And I could just tell, like, that's what the end of the show looks like. I know that. Right. And I got the most, like, sad, weird, like, I missed it. I totally fucked up. Oh. What did I like this feeling? And then it made me so happy because I was like, oh my God, you can still feel like that. 50. This is so great. <laughs> oh, that's <laughs> it was great. like a test. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. Yeah. I, but I didn't get to see them, but I'll oh, see them. Well, that's kind of nice. That's that save that for the second book. I yeah. <laughs> I, I uh, yeah, no, that's so interesting. And I, I feel that too. And I I've noticed that there used to be an album probably once a month that where I would wake up early in the morning and drive to the record store for 10 a.m. when it opens and, mm. and you know, open the cellophane in the car. Of course, yeah. now we can just hop out right. of bed and it's already in our library yeah, and, yeah. and uh, on our phone. And so, uh, you know, I always, I, I kind of crave for some of those moments that remind me of, of my youth and those feelings. Yeah, the, the one I think about a lot is... um you know, when you see a band play a song or you hear a song on the radio or whatever, you can just, oh, I'm, I'll just listen to that. And yeah. I miss not being able to do that and having to try to remember what the song sounded oh, like and point. eventually get it or maybe order it or maybe look for it. That's Those a good are, point. Yeah. It's so much more fun. I, so much more rewarding once you got there. I, uh, I remember downloading my first, probably one of my first MP3s. And I, and I, I think it took... I remember I found it. The song I was looking for was unreleased. And and I remember downloading it and then sitting in my computer for a little while and then going to have a shower, coming back. And this was one MP3. And it was still <laughs> like two hours to go. <laughs> and you're like, it's amazing. It's still like, faster oh, than going to the oh, mall. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Oh, there was no mall. Yeah, this was... Right. <laughs> I have to say, I absolutely adored your book, and I'm going to get a, a copy of it when it comes out. Uh, and and when Thank our you. folks hear it, th it will have already been out because it comes out next week from when right. we're talking. But but this will be out in just a couple of weeks, and so it will already be available. I want a t I want a lot of people to read it for so many different reasons, and our listeners can can grab a copy by going to otherrecordlabels.com/books. I'll have links to it there. And, and you can read a lot about the music industry and you learn about the, the fluid definition of family and about race in America and, and this inescapable father-son dynamic, which is just really will do your head in. Um, but it, it's, it, if I love this, like, choose your own takeaway from the book too. That's right. what I think is so beautiful. And so I want all of our listeners to, to get this. And, and if they're not readers, to make this the one book that they read this summer. I'm curious, like, what what's next for you? You talk about, we just talked about how it's hard to kind of, you know, uh, maintain that magic and that feeling. And so what, what do you feel like you want to conquer next or create next? Right. I don't know. I mean, I, I think about it a lot and now people are asking me yeah. <laughs> more than they ever have. But I mean, this, you know, this took years. This was sort of when you add it all up about four years, it took me about two years to write a version on my own. And then I did the book deal and then it was another year and a half with my editor. So I guess three and a half years. Mm. Um, and, and it's, I mean, it goes from the moment my mother meets my father yeah. to like a year and a half ago. So it's, it's the whole That's thing. That's right. So, so what's hard so wait is another to think, 50 like, years. <laughs> right, what else do you cover? Do you, so yeah. I, I don't want to, 
I wasn't trying to write that book. I was writing a lot and I'd written a lot about my father and the times I'd met him and these kind of putting together these pieces. And once I'd written a lot and I'd written a lot about my record stores and my bands and all the fun stuff, once I'd written a lot of that, I sort of looked at it and said, oh, wow, I wonder if I could make this into a book. So in a way, I'd already done a lot of the hard work and I had done it with nobody expecting anything of me, nobody asking me to do it. I just did it, you know, quietly on my own, really without knowing it. And so it's kind of impossible to to recreate that. I mean, any, whatever I do now is like, well, what should I do next? It has to be more conscious and that's already more pressure and a different way of thinking. But I think, I mean, what's exciting is that this book is out and some people will read it and some people will have things to say. And I think how I react to that will decide what's next. Right. Whether that means, I mean, I would love to write another book, but I don't have to write another book and I only want to do it if I feel compelled to. Are you ready for criticism for, for negative reviews? <laughs> I think so. I mean, I know it's coming, <laughs> of course. I mean, I wrote a piece once, for the, one of the shorter pieces I wrote for The Root, which is the, this great New York black culture website about my racial identity. And it was a fairly short piece, but to paraphrase, it was kind of like, my father's black, my mother's white. I've been lucky and had a relatively easy time with that. I haven't had super huge racist moments. Of course, tons of small shit throughout my life, but nothing, you know, really evil or scary. Or, uh, and that that was kind of it. There, it was a weird, like, sort of thesis. And I think yeah. I was testing the waters to see, like, yeah. can I can I write about this? And the root has comments, and the comments were brutal. And oh. there were a lot of them. <laughs> and this is funny. I can bring it back home to record labels. Um, and it made me feel good. I read them and I was like, ooh, ooh. And I was like, you know what? This affected people and this yes. made people, yes. none of them, I mean, they couldn't say anything. It was all like, well, you know, fuck you and your story. Here's my story. Look sure. how bad this could have been. And I was like, I know, that's kind of what that's I was the, saying. I was just telling mine. <laughs> um, but what it made me think is that it felt, really, and there were also some nice comments, but it felt good to get to people and it didn't, stop me from doing anything and it in a weird way it was better than no comments a hundred percent and that's something that that a lot of labels not just 4d but lots of people that I've talked to over the years when people put out a record if there's if there's nothing then that doesn't mean much if people really like it and people and some people really dislike it that's how you know you have there you something go. There you go. A hundred percent. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I, I absolutely feel that way. And and if I send us a, a track I'm working on to a friend and they respond with cool, and I'm like, it's garbage. It's garbage. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Cool. What, what, cool. Cool kick drum sound. <laughs> right. I, I forgot to ask you, you know, in the book, our, our people will find out that you started a record store. You worked at a record store. You yeah. you uh, were a musician signed to a major label. You interned at a major label, I think, or a yeah, label. Yeah, college. Uh -huh. You've worked at record labels. You've started record labels. <laughs> you've done all of these all of these perspectives. Lots of music, yeah. How does that uh, inform who you are as a label owner? It's got to make you more empathetic in a way. I think so. I mean, yeah, it, it's, it's funny to have seen it and been part of it on so many different levels to see, you know, the smallest one-person operation or a self-released album mm -hmm. and the biggest. I mean, I was, I was a scout for Epic Records for three years. I didn't work in the office in New York. Wow. I... I did this job in Seattle where I was supposed to like, you know, send in music whenever I wanted to. But I would always visit the office and like to see it on that level 
and to see just how huge that machine was, and, and the same being in a band on a major label, um, all of it, I think, has made me more empathetic because it makes you realize, I think there's a lot of people that just think like, once you put out a record, as long as it's with someone reputable, mm. you're going to be fine. They can mm. get you on TV or they can get you on the radio or they can get you on Pitchfork or whatever it is. And it's still so much hard work for for the labels I work for, for the majors, for everybody. It's still like you can never guarantee anyone anything. And there's a lot of people that are really at least trying mm. to get those things. And this is also what it feels like at my publishing company, where I feel lucky to have these people who I know are trying to do this stuff for me and we're not getting everything, but they're getting some of it. And it's really cool to have someone doing that. I love uh, I, I love the part about your record store, Sonic Boom, because I just love that era. It's when I was a teenager, but I love that CD era of the early yeah. 2000s, the height of everything. It just <laughs> I, I remember when Interpol turned out the bright lights, turn on the bright lights, came out. Um, which is what, 2002, 20 years. Matador put them on sale and we were selling the CD for $7.99. And we, we would just, we, we'd sell them so fast that we decided to just put them on the counter in like this flip case. And we'd order like 300, you know, 150, 300 at a time, all on CD. And my joke was that that we were selling them like like a pack of gum at 7-Eleven. Yeah. Like it was just like a, here's what I'm getting. Oh yeah, and I'll take an Interpol CD. It was almost like, <laughs> of course, oh, this is here. Yeah. Like it was so crazy how oh. easily and how quickly we sold those yeah. CDs. And, and now we look back and go, you know, we, that was just like the the end of the flame burning up. But <laughs> Right, <laughs> right but I know. I love that time. It was a fun time. Uh, thank you so much for doing this, Nabil. It's been such a pleasure to talk to you. Your book is thank fantastic. Thank you. It's great talking to you. It's been I, fun. I have another question for our patrons. If you have a couple more minutes. I do. Don't forget, if you want to link to Nabil's book, I will include it in the description of this podcast, as well as in the description on YouTube. And you can go to otherrecordlabels.com slash books, where we collect all of our recommended books. And this book will be right there for you to find. Again, thank you for listening. Thank you to Nabil for being a part of the show. And if you are new to other record labels, welcome. Please subscribe and check out our previous episodes. And if you want resources for record labels, go to otherrecordlabels.com. Thanks for listening.